Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. Today, I'm here with Daniela. Daniela Mestinek Young is an American author, TEDx speaker, and organizational behavior consultant. You're going to school right now, aren't you? I saw that on Twitter. Yes, I'm doing a master's degree in organizational psychology at Harvard Extension School. Gotcha. I'm actually going to go into um, my master's in the fall for psychology as well. <laughs> so uh, Daniela is an Army combat veteran, one of the first women to serve on, on deliberate ground combat missions and was the recipient of the Presidential Volunteer Service Award in 2014. Daniela lives in the greater D.C. area with her husband, a retired special operations pilot, her trilingual daughter, and their their sauna and tropical plants. I'm like, does that really say sauna? (laughs) You know, got to throw something fun in there. Oh, yes, absolutely. Trilingual. Trilingual. Do you speak three languages as well? So I do, yeah. So I speak Brazilian, Portuguese, Spanish, and a little bit of English. And then we decided to raise my daughter in those languages as well. That's amazing. I actually wanted to be an interpreter when I was younger, when I was really younger, like high school. And then I looked into it and I, and I learned that I learning multiple languages is easiest when you're a child. Like if you are brought up on that, it's, it's much easier than an adult to learn a new language. Very true. It's very true. Um, my daughter's learning German with me now. She's five. Um, and my husband's learning Portuguese and I'm studying German and my daughter's just like picks up everything super quickly. <laughs> Kids, kids learn so easy. We adults, not as much. (laughs) True. So, um, I asked you to come on the podcast because you have a really interesting journey and I say journey because like from childhood to now, (laughs) there's a lot there. Uh, so I would love for you to start out to tell us what was your childhood like? Okay. (laughs) That's a big question. You want me to give you a brief overview? Yeah, of brief because I'd like to. Also, yeah, brief because I'd also like to cover like the things that you did as an adult as well. Right. Okay. So I was born into a religious cult called the Children of God, and I was actually, importantly, a third generation member. So my mom was born and raised in it. Also, my mom gave birth to me when she was barely fifteen years old. Um, And then I ended up growing in it as growing up in it as well um, till the age of 15 when I got myself kicked out um, and started this whole new life that we'll talk about. But, you know, the the children of God was essentially started by this failed prophet or this failed preacher guy in the 50s or in the 60s, uh, 1969. So he was in his 50s, hadn't had much success trying to be a preacher from a family of preachers and you know, he found his time. It was like the perfect, if you think of startups, uh, which I do a lot as compared to cults, it the 60s into the 70s was the time of cults. Um, Interestingly enough, we're kind of in another version of that now. But 
Um, so, you know, he found his groove with the hippies and, you know, I'll talk about this more, but it started off as just a, just a religious group. You know, nobody sets out to build an evil cult. I don't think this man did either. It started off as love, faith, Jesus, and it ended up becoming really dark. You know, the children of God is usually listed kind of right after all the ones that did mass suicide or mass violence comes the children of God because they ended up getting into some crazy beliefs regarding specifically regarding sex and sex being tied into religion. And he started with forced polyamory where everyone had to have sex with everyone. He started with religious prostitution and then he eventually got into what I call the pedophilia for God, where it was a actual theory that children needed sexual relations with adults in order to grow up under God's love. Um, of course, it was all very messed up, right? But when you're right. growing up in this environment, that's that's kind of all you know. And so my life, you know, was growing up in walled, behind walled communes. Um, I was born in the Philippines, lived in Japan briefly as a child, Peru briefly as a child, and then 10 years in Brazil. Um, and then a little bit in the US and a little bit in Mexico after that. I mean, it was always this kind of, you know, mostly developing nations where large rich people properties with high walls, concrete walls around them are very common. Right. And you can put 100, 150 people behind that without too many people asking too many questions, right? So very sort of similar to why uh, Jim Jones took all of his followers out to Guyana in South America to go build his commune. Um, we didn't go to school. We, we kind of like had some school, sometimes did school, but you know, we were a bunch of children being raised by mostly either college or high school dropouts uh, from the, the hippie era um, who, are, who, who truly believe that only the prophet's words are the only things that we need to know. So for example, he wrote his own history textbook, right? Called 7,000 Years of World History. And that's what we learned. And that was like our gospel. And, you know, mostly we spent hours and hours every day studying our prophet's words and working, you know, a lot of, a lot of child labor, a lot of also like proselytizing in the streets and a lot of, I was a kind of a big child actor. So I was on a lot of videos and tapes and different distribution materials that we had both internally but then also as another tool right to sell on the streets for money to raise money and this whole sort of front as a missionary group which most people really believed they were um and you know the children of god spread to be ten thousand people all around the world oh wow and lasted lasted in its primary like major membership form for over 40 years, including after David Burr's death. And then it's still, you know, something today. <laughs> I'm not even really sure, but it still exists online. My grandfather is still the chief financial officer for them. Um, my family was, you know, quite high up and, and quite connected. And, you know, the biggest thing I think about my life is when I was six years old, I went through some pretty, pretty severely abusive experiences and just decided, I don't believe this. I don't believe this is God. I don't believe this is love. And 
but when that's all you know, obviously, it's not as clear cut as that, right? It's right. You're, you're still trying to navigate. Um, but looking back, you know, I think it, it was really important and a, a big difference for me versus some people that didn't have these realizations until they were older, who grew up along next to me, even a lot of my own siblings, um, that I was just from the age of six to the age of 15, I was just playing a game. You know, I was doing what I could to survive, playing the game as much as I needed to, but also keeping myself separate and doing what I could. You know, I taught myself to read Brazilian Portuguese so that I could go read the encyclopedias in our <laughs> house because I just wanted to know more things about the world. Um, so I was always that kid, right? I was always that kid asking why, wanting to dig into things. I'm an idea person. Obviously, I love psychology, um, which, you know, when you're growing up in a cult means you're in trouble all the time. Right. How do you get yourself kicked out? Uh, oh, boy. Um, <laughs> all right. So I start on 9-11, right? On 9-11, we had just come to the US for the first time and we were in San Diego and I'd never even seen live television on um, other than World Cup Brazilian soccer. I've right. seen that, but I'd never seen live news before. Didn't even know what it was. And we're watching the towers fall down and the rhetoric is, this is God's judgment. This is God's plan, right? This is a good thing. And I'm 14 and I'm watching people jump out of towers to their death. And I'm hearing the term religious extremists on the news. And I think that was what I describe as like really kind of the crack in the brainwashing, even though I, you know, rejected it as a much younger child. This was having the words, right? To think about, oh, maybe we're religious extremists. And um, I also really enjoyed living in the US, even within a commune. <laughs> And so when it was time to then leave and go back to the quote unquote field in Mexico, I was done. I was pissed. And so I just sort of launched a very rebellious teenager campaign, um, which is funny, obviously, when you think of actual rebellious teenagers. But like I refused to speak Spanish. I refused to go out on the streets and sell stuff. Um, and eventually I took up with a Mexican boy in the neighborhood <laughs> that was definitely not allowed. You know, you cannot step outside what we literally called the family, right? Which is so creepy, but, right. um, so, and then it, it, you know, the news broke, this was a very excommunicable offense. You know, you can't have really any contact, definitely any romantic contact with anyone outside. Your only contact is supposed to be trying to win them over to our way. And so that launched this whole, you know, investigation. And I was, it was kind of funny because I was gonna be kicked out. And then they realized I was the oldest third generation at the time. My family was famous. I think they kind of realized like, psychological operations like we actually need to control this you know and all of these things I'm learning in uh, in psychology now right like social proof like if 15 year old Daniela leaves that's going to be news and then are all of our other you know teenagers very young teenagers going to realize that there's life out there and want to do something different so they actually came back to me and like offered me kind of a deal you know or I'd only have to go through some months of punishment and rededication and <laughs> all the things that anyone that's familiar with churches probably has heard before 
And yeah. uh, my mom at the time actually took me aside and, you know, she was still very much in the cult. She was a, a leader at the time and she took me out on a walk away from everyone. And she was like, just go, just go. Like we already found a place for you to land. You're not going to be happy here. Just go. Um, you know, and I, then from that, you know, sort of got the strength to be like, no, I'm, I'm not going to stay. I don't want to be here. I'm out. Right. So then you transition, I mean, not at 15, but some years later to what you refer to sometimes as another cult. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you know, real briefly, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because I get to, I'm in Texas, I'm living with like an older stepsister that I don't really know, who's just out of the cult struggling on her own life. And, you know, I go to enroll in high school with my social security card and my passport. And they're just like, yeah, we can't enroll you here because you don't exist. But <laughs> now that we know you exist, like you need to show us proof you're enrolled somewhere or we have to call the police. You know, and this, I think it's just such a good example of what it's like trying to operate in the world. And that's all, you know, did you um, end up getting your GED or did no, they let I you into up, high school? I ended up getting enrolled in that high oh, school. Gotcha. It was just a process. And that was where I started learning that there's processes and you can always challenge what the authority figures are telling you. Um, so, you know, high school was a big struggle, but college was really fun for me. And I, I studied literature. I got to go study abroad in Germany um, and, and had a really, really good time. Um, and then when I graduated from college as the valedictorian with my honors degree in English in 2009, we'll all remember that was not a great time for jobs. Yeah, um, I, I graduated decided, college in 2008. Yeah. Um, so I decided I was going to commission into the army, um, which then, yes, very much becomes, right, second cult. And even looking back now, I see, you know, at the time I had any number of reasons for doing what I did. And now I look back and I'm like, nope, I think I was just looking for structure. Like I needed someone to tell me what the next thing to do was. I don't think I would have known how to even go about like learning how to get a job, trying to get connected, you know, all of those things you have to do in the world on your own after college, because I just had no clue. Right. I think that happens to a lot of people, even people who haven't been in a cult, like where they get, they graduate high school or they, you know, maybe they get their GED or they've dropped out or whatever. And they're like, I don't even know how to be an adult. I don't know what to do with my life any of that stuff. So they're like, oh, well, I could join the military. They're going to pay me and feed me and provide me an education. So why not? Yes. It, I mean, it's very true. And, you know, it's funny because in the army, they literally will say that to you. They say, all you have to do to be successful is be at the right place and the right time and the right uniform, you know, and it's like, you don't got to think you just have to, to show up. And, you know, that was, that was kind of my experience. It's like, I, I did this direct commission program. So I went to like regular basic training and then a, a five month school um, to become an officer as opposed to like somebody that goes to West Point or somebody that does ROTC in college. But, you know, I have this experience and I have this story in my book, you know, where I'm I'm in basic training and one of the first things they do, I think everyone goes through it is, you know, they've already sleep deprived you, so they've kept you up like 
at least 24, if not sometimes 72 hours, you're going completely crazy. Um, you're being yelled at, you're standing in all these lines, you're just like, boom, group, group think, right? And then there's this thing that they run you through that it's like two to three hours of just holding a 50 pound duffel bag in the sky above your head as you're being yelled at by all of these drill sergeants who are specifically trained to be sort of like psychologically traumatizing in all these different ways. And I just remember thinking to myself like, okay, I just joined another cult. <laughs> um, and that was actually very useful and very helpful to me, right? Because similarly to what I described when I was six years old, I was like, okay, I got this, right? Like I can play the game. I can play the game and I can also sort of keep myself separate um, you know, an interesting thing I found in, in leadership research recently is that most of the like transformational leaders, which is kind of the newest, biggest uh, research on what, what really good leaders are, and it's people that can be a part of the organization. Often they're in the organization for a long time, but they keep themselves separate in the way that um, you know, it's easy to describe to, to veterans, like someone who is in the army or someone who is the army all yeah. the time. Um, and, and, and those are two very different people. And your experience, I think, is very, very different when you're in the group or when you are the group. Yeah. You see that with military spouses, too. Um, oh, yeah. So my husband um, has um, been in the Navy and... <clears throat> I would see it all the time with military spouses where they're like, so about the Navy, their life revolves around the Navy or the military, like military in general, it's their life. It is everything about them. And then you have people like me, that's like, I can't wait for us to be out of this shit. <laughs> like I'm, I'm out, like I'm done. So like, there's a difference. Like I had a, a friend of mine be like, you should write a book about your time as a military spouse. It'd be so in inspirational. I was like, no. No, I don't want to be associated with it. I don't want that to be my identity. I'm good. But then, you know, it's the same thing. And I find like the, the spouses that are very like, who ya Navy, their spouses are also who ya Navy, where yep. my spouse saw it as a job. Like it was just a job. We just, you know, go through the, the, the steps for this job. He retires, we're done. Like that sort of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. So when I you know, later on down the line, I, I left the military and married uh, someone who stayed in the military. And so I got to do five years as a as a military spouse in a special operations unit. So that was even its own. We'll, we'll get to my theory that all groups and all, all cults are basically the same, right? But yeah, <laughs> it's its own like whole world. And, and I'm with you there. I mean, I always like my friends that are military spouses, I can barely tell you what their spouses do, what their ranks are, because that's not what we talk about. We're all our right. own people and we all have our own lives that we lead in addition to being a, a part of this group as well. And I, I do truly believe that that's an important distinction. So you had some, before we, we move on, you had some very awful, awful is the right word, experiences in the military, um, which you share on Twitter. Anybody who wants to learn more about your story can follow you on Twitter because you share a lot of it. 
but um, you dealt with um, some sexism <laughs> in yep. the military and misogyny. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and this starts off with like, I joined the military not knowing that it was still gender segregated, right? I did not grow up in the US. Um, in basic training, I was kind of joking around that I was going to go into the infantry, which wasn't true. I always wanted to be intelligence, but, <laughs> and somebody was like, you can't be in the infantry. You're a, you're a girl. And I was like, what do you mean? Right. And I could not be convinced that that level of discrimination, which is what it is, right, was still alive and legal anywhere in the United States. I mean, I was flabbergasted. And I think like because of that and just because of who I am, I mean, I was always able to see it from this perspective of like, anytime you ban a group of people from something, you're making them an other. Right. And, you know, anyone that knows anything about group dynamics, it's you make someone the other and they very quickly become the enemy. Mm -hmm. And in the army, you know, what we're really, really good at doing, like attacking and killing our enemies. And in in the military, I mean, from from day one in the army, right, when I was going through basic training in, in 2009, you know, our drill sergeants are saying to our faces, you know, women in the military are either a bitch, a slut, or a dyke. You know, you get to choose which one. Of course, you know, slut being something that's gonna get you looked down on, lesbian being something that was still illegal at the time. Right. Um, and implication being from your first days of training, right? Like you better learn how to be a stone cold bitch if you want to survive in this world. And um, I, there's definitely a chapter in my book called I'm the bitch. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it starts so early and I sort of bought into it hook, hook, line and sinker, right? Because all I know how to do is be perfect to survive, um, at least then. And so I did, you know, I ran the five minute miles and I did the jump higher and, and be better than all of the men just so that I can be accepted and it doesn't work. It's never enough. Um, obviously I think there's like some ways that I got treated better, but there's some ways that like, I was always just a target for the sexism and the misogyny. And, you know, it, it's so interesting because as you said, you know, I, I share my stories pretty openly on Twitter and in my book, but almost every woman who served has, those versions of those same stories yeah. you know and yet we still struggle with getting the men right like our brothers in arms to realize that we even had a different experience you know that everything from the way our appearance is regulated in uniform to the way we're treated to the jobs that we're told we can have comes from this really ancient you know white male supremacy ideas that are just at the core of our military and our organizations when it, you know, when we start talking about values and, and group psychology, like it's all in there and you just can't operate in that environment without having it, you know, really kind of infect you, um, you know, to the point that like when I was one of the first women 
going on ground combat patrols, you know, so I'm being sent outside the wire with 25 to 40 men who I'm supposed to trust to have my back in a firefight. And I was warned by three different senior officers, you know, to watch my back out on the objective with, you know, the, the very clear implication being like, you could be gang raped out there. And none of us stopped to think about like, why do we think that, you know, wh why are we just accepting the idea that 25 American soldiers are just going to simultaneously lose their minds and assault an officer when they leave the wire, you know, that's, that's rape culture. That is, it's so baked into literally every part of our military right now and every service struggles with it. And I definitely um, had my share of struggles with well, I mean, right now the military is doing extreme, extremism training because it, extremism is a very big issue with the military because of exactly what you're talking about, right? This white supremacist mindset. And uh, my issue with this extremism training is there's no follow-up. There's no like, we're gonna search your social media. We're going to see where you might be connected to these groups and anybody who is, we're kicking them out. Like none of this stuff. It's just like, if you see something, say something like that's not going to do anything. Like that's not, it's just the same with sexism and racism training in the military. Like that doesn't stop it. It right. just suppress it, like makes it not so obvious. Yeah. And exactly. And so, you know, my analogy for this is like, so we, when I was in, we do a very similar training uh, that's called anti-terrorism, right? Which is like, these are, you're, you're training every person. Like these are the, what is called indicators to look for in intelligence. You know, if you see this, be careful, blah, blah, blah. If you, if you start to notice a person that does this, 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 all these things together could be a sign. But if all we did was give you that brief and we didn't actually have people out there hunting the terrorists, that of course would not be effective, right? Right, And so when it gets to some of these things, right? And of course it's, it's not a coincidence that we always talk about sexism and misogyny and white supremacy in the same sentences because all of these systems of oppression are tied together, they come from the same place. And um, in fact, my second book probably will be about um, <laughs> white supremacy in the military, especially because I found out that my first husband was a major, major white supremacist. Um, ended up, you know, testifying against him to get him kicked out of the army, and and really started to have a lot of these realizations that, like, it is, you know, in my life, I was like, it wasn't a coincidence that I escaped a cult and then married a white supremacist, right? There was right. something there. It's because I had just come out of a cult and I was a 19-year-old girl, and I met this guy who, of course, I didn't know was a white supremacist, right? But there was something there I was recognizing probably. And I think in, in much the same ways, you know, in our organizations, like it's not a coincidence that 20% of the defendants in the January 6th Capitol insurrection are US military veterans, right? That's not a coincidence. And that's a much higher level than it seen in the population, right? It's statistically significant. And it's because, you know, I believe, right? Part of it is because like 
let's go back to this basic training, right? Oh, I'm in a cult, right? Like what all training in the military does, especially your initial training, it's break you down and try to turn you from being a normal human who thinks individually and would probably run the opposite direction of a bullet. And they're trying to turn you into a soldier who thinks like a group and runs towards bullets. Right. And so it's very much programming and we don't like to name it like that. And all you got to do is say cult and military in the same sentence and people start flipping out on you. Right. Um, at least until January 6th, when all of a sudden everyone's like, hey, she's got a point, <laughs> um, you know, but but we so, so militaries like program violence on behalf of state into their members because that's what we have to do as long as war exists right we need people to go out and commit violence on behalf of state to keep us safe but we are not you know to your point like we don't follow up on that like there isn't any deprogramming that's done when when people leave the military there isn't right. any caution or care within when, when people are in the military you know i think both of my deployments was spent just like flabbergasted by the just open displays of racism, right? From American soldiers to the Afghan people who aren't even the people we're fighting against. Right. Um, and it was, I mean, it was horrifying and I did my best to call it out when I could, but that was just, that's the attitude. And when we allow, again, this hatred, this othering, all of this stuff to flourish, like, and, and we layer on that, you know, a healthy dose of Americans don't question the military, Americans worship the military, you know, soldiers don't question their leaders or their structures. I mean, it's not surprising that we end up with these very toxic environments and very bad things happening, even though these are our respected organizations. Right. When I was talking to my spouse about this, I was like, you know, I, I knew in the back of my head that these things existed, like this extremism in the military, but I was just like, did you know that so, that so many people in the military are part of extremist groups and I'm talking about it? And he was like, I mean, babe, I don't really know people who are in extremist groups. I don't think he was like, but on carriers, there's actual gangs. He was like, there are gangs on carriers and they recruit members. He was like, so it's not surprising that extremist groups are recruiting members via the military either. Yeah, exactly. And it's all the same, um, it's all the same reasoning, you know? So like right now I'm actually doing a project in one of my classes um, and I'm using this, this research paper that is looking at, so it's looking at the motivations of why people join cults and the motivations of why people join terrorist groups and gangs to show, look, these are essentially the same. And the big question is like, why are more people not doing this? You know, right. because it, it is. And it's, you know, I think it's, it's one of these things in the military that like, again, like we have to question it. Like, and we have to understand I do this a lot, you know, I say you can't spell culture without cult. And I say <laughs> that, you know, every branch of the military is its own cult. Um, so is an individual family, by the way. Right. You know, but we need to look at like these these groups work by giving people mission and purpose and love and community. And that's also where they can go wrong, right? Th like those are drivers that human beings need to survive. And so human beings find these groups 
whether a cult, whether a gang, whether the United States Army, and they become like so dedicated to it that it starts to just become your whole personality. That's the point that it becomes much, much easier for you to get radicalized. So we mentioned another cult <laughs> at the very beginning, and this is a cult that your ex-husband belongs to. <laughs> So let's talk about that cult because I believe it's a cult too. And, and hopefully anybody listens by now believes it's a cult too, because I have discussed this in length on the podcast. And I always see my numbers drop for listenership every time I talk about these things, because I'm like, no, I'm, I'm serious about this. I, I truly believe this is wrong. Um, so t- tell us, tell us about that cult. Um, so you're talking about QAnon. QAnon and the MAGA cult. The MAGA, yeah, yeah, all of it. We have a lot Um, of overlap, too. Yes, yes. Um, It is always fun to see the numbers drop, right? When you're like, oh, okay, I guess I got a little too close to home for some people. (laughs) Um, That's okay. That's my entire brand. Um, Yeah, you know, I mean, it is exactly the same, right? And I, I think it's very significant that President Obama's last address to the nation in office after, of course, the huge upset of the 2016 presidential election was watch out for AI and tech and the silos that it's putting us in, right? It was essentially what his last address to the nation was, you know, like it, the, the 2016 election shouldn't have been surprising. It wasn't surprising to me, by the way, I knew Trump was going to win people kept saying, he's not going to win. He's too extreme. And I was like, no, no, no. He's going to win because of his extremism, right? Right. Not despite it. And, you know, there's a very real amount of, you know, I I think to, to sort of explain why the whole, the whole QAnon magazine is so appealing to some people is, you know, a certain set of people in this country have been sold a lie that they are better than everyone else, right? And that's yeah. white people and that's definitely white men. And they, whether they consciously or subconsciously believe it, right? We were all raised in this system and, we, and we're and we all basically trained to believe that like white men should have it easier and be more successful than the rest of us. Right. So when they're not, because we have systemic social problems, right? So when anyone is struggling because we don't have a, a national healthcare system because we don't take care of our our people. Um, they are looking for somebody else to blame, right? And so then it's so easy to, for it to be immigrants, for it to be other people, for it to be you know the government, whatever it is, right? So Trump comes along with his cult leader persona and his rhetoric, and I mean. So I'm reading a book by a cult expert now called The Cult of Trump, and it is fascinating. And it is all, I mean, it, it it's what I thought all along. It's like straight out of the cult players, the cult leaders handbook. Um, you know, I tell people this, like when you're in the military and you're watching a news story that's about the military, you're getting this entire subtext that other people aren't getting, right? And when I watch Trump on television, when I watch the Harry Meghan Oprah interview, right? Like I am getting the cult subtext in there that other people are not seeing. And all, all of the little things he did, right? Like let's build the wall, like lock her up. Like 
picking a picking a, a random fan to throw out of his rallies. That's calculated. He's gonna lose that one fan. He's gonna lose that one family's votes, but he's gonna get so many others dedicated because he did that othering thing, right? Like he right. us us versus them is what you know cult leaders really, really rely on to get people to to just walk onto them and focus. And so you know, so we have the Trump election, which is just like simply just a backlash to progress and to the first African-American president and to yep. this group of people that have been sold the lie that they're better than everyone feeling like they're losing it. Right. And 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 they are. And, and we are right. White people like we are losing our privilege. The U.S. is going to be minority white people by 2040. Um, really nothing we can do about it. Um, and it was ill gotten gains to begin with. Right. So it's kind of this this very drastic choice right now is that like lean into progress and change and progressiveness or stay back and fight it. And then, you know, so, so we're going through these huge cultural changes and then you layer that with AI and with, you know, your, your news feeds on every social media platform that is custom to what you like. And, you know, the, the one thing that all cults have to have that any kind of brainwashing that any kind of programming has to have is isolation. This is why in basic training, you don't get to talk to anyone but your drill sergeants, you don't get to talk to each other. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things I always tell people, you know, if at any point in time, you're spending the majority of your brain time on one topic, whether that's studying the Bible at your church, whether that's all the CrossFit that you're gonna do, whether that's whatever, it becomes problematic, right? If you don't have a structure where you're sort of like taking every idea one at a time and testing it and challenging it and talking to a variety of other people about it, you are at risk of becoming indoctrinated. And the technology, just makes this worse and worse and worse and you know and then the the final thing is like the way cults work like they don't start off with like hey megan you look really nice do you want to be a nazi you know <laughs> they start off with picking one little thing that you might be upset about you know white people are very very upset about the term white privilege so right. we start with that right? We can hone in that you argued against white privilege at one point, and we can show you the right pages and show you the right groups. And as soon as you're in the right group, your radicalization is so, so, so likely to happen because that's when you start to get the love and the community and the shared, you know, almost that high that you get, like if you're at a conference, you know, conference right. high, like you get that from any group of of people with shared ideas, which is why we all like homogeneity. And, 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 you know, that's the way it happens. And then once you're, once you're radicalized, it is very, very hard to get away from that, especially once you've been sort of public about your beliefs, you've, you've come up with all of these mental processes to explain the cognitive dissonance. And you, you literally just encourage yourself more into it. And the scariest thing is proof to the contrary only makes cult members cling harder to their beliefs. 
So every time the apocalypse fails to occur as predicted, you people rededicate themselves even more, right? And we saw that with January 6th, March 4th, they have not gone away, right? They right. have only been tested. We saw Trump Trump fans saying, oh, he left us out in the cold because he wanted to test us, you know? And if you can't look at that, see that that's a cult, you might be, you might be in the cult. Yeah, he's very calculating. I've been saying this for since 2016. People were like, he's so stupid. He doesn't know what he's doing. I'm like, no, he knows exactly what he's doing. He is very aware of what he is doing. And look at how he did. In the in the beginning, he saw people like in his cult pulling away because the insurrection. And then they started blaming Antifa and they started blaming all these other people, not Trump supporters. And what did he do last week? He confirmed all that. He was like, that was a peaceful protest. People that were there that were Trump supporters didn't do anything wrong. Other people were responsible for the violence that happened, not Trump supporters. And he just played right into that. Yep. And, they'll, and it doesn't matter, you know, at, at the point that you've become the cult leader, it doesn't matter that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter that all evidence is pointing to the contrary, you know, and, and even the whole intelligence thing, you know, like cult leaders often are not the most intelligent people in the room, right? A lot of times they're a little bumbling, a little, a little weird, but they, they, they understand human nature and human dynamics, right? And they're able to play into that. And all these short, you know, like when I when I said earlier to you, you know, you can't spell culture without cult, like people remember that. There's a very complex paragraph right. that I could give you to explain all of that. But if you just say that, like people remember that, right? And so that's like a really big tool of cult leader, um, cult leaders. It's also a tool of just good leaders, right? Like being able to, to have these quotes and have these pithy things that people can remember and adopt. Um, but, you know, I always say there's, there's two sides to every coin, like the good leader side and the cult leader side are just opposite sides of the same coin. And really, I think, you know, practically for people, it really does come down to that. Understand that any group you're in, has the potential to be extremely toxic, has the potential to be a cult or an idea cult. How are you testing that? How are you putting stress on that group? How are you unculturing yourself? I love pissing off both sides. It's my favorite thing to do. And I do it often where like, I will say something like, uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was against Cuomo and how I was just like, well, he's trash and he needs to go. And I had all these Democrats that were, how dare you do that? He's been the most wonderful leader during this pandemic. Those women could be lying. And I'm like, dude, he lied about nursing home deaths. I think that should have been the, the, the deciding factor a while ago, but I get attacked by them. And then, you know, I say something against a Republican, any Republican, and then the Trump, the Trumpians are like, how dare you talk about them like that? You don't know what you're talking about. You're just a sheep. And I'm just like, oh, both of you, both ends of the spectrum are just, <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, it's, the, the Cuomo thing, right? It's it's another good example of cult think, right? And even though I, I don't think it's the same, I think it's, 
it's really dangerous the false equivalency that's going on right now that like the the extreme quote unquote extreme left and the extreme right are the same because they're not no. um one side's the protestants the other side is the children of god right <laughs> like very different levels of danger um however yes right i mean even very reasonable democrats have been very reluctant to publicly come out against this guy because they're like oh no what's going to happen what you know are we going to lose our control and to your point megan you know so much of it is is that right it's like no he's our guy this is our person we have to right. stand beside them and it's just it's always problematic and it's always you know it's not even surprising to any of us anymore when these senior leaders come out as bad people right because we know it's baked into the value systems, it's baked into the organizations. And if we're not willing, you know, I, I don't think, like if we're not willing to answer for how they got there and to cut them out of the organization and out of the leadership, then, you know, start looking harder at your organization and, you know, whether you have some of these terrible culty dynamics or not. Absolutely. So as we wrap up the podcast today, we've talked a lot about cults and you mentioned you wanted to share with us um, more about like what you're learning. So what would you like to leave the Inspired Women audience with? Yeah, you know, um, I would say for sure what I'm learning as I, you know, so basically I say in my life, you know, I studied, I spent 33 years studying very extreme organizations. And now I'm, you know, in a, in a Harvard master's program, getting kind of all the academics behind it. And what I think I can say from all of my experience is that cults are like any other group and they work for the same reasons that other groups do, right? As human beings, we're hardwired to group because it gives us like increased power. And a cult gives people mission, purpose, community, reason to believe, right? And all these psychological drivers. And what I hope right now is listeners are going, yes, 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 yes. I get those same things from my church or from my workout group or from my sports team or from my kids' school because they're all the same, right? They're just groups. That's how groups work. And so, you know, if you are listening to my, my stories or people's cult stories and you think that sounds crazy or you think that sounds far-fetched, you think that sounds impossible, I would ask listeners to look at your groups and organizations and the beliefs and ask yourself, you know, have you questioned everything? Can you question, you know, are you in a group where there's not a structure that allows you to ruthlessly question everything that the leader is saying um because we all have these cults around us right and you you really have to know what you believe and why you believe it and you know be willing to give up some of your beliefs too when they just don't test sound that's what i would leave people with yeah i mean definitely all i can think when when you were talking was it has to start somewhere like you said, a cult doesn't start out as a cult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first rule of being in a cult is you're never a cult. I mean, we spent so much time in my childhood talking about how we were not a cult. 
to the point that later in my normal life, I was like, well, obviously we were a cult or we wouldn't have spent that much time talking about why we weren't a cult, right? But like, if you ever having that discussion, Q people, MAGA people, they all must be having it at this point now because they've been compared to cults so many times. Like if you're ever having that discussion, like, no, you, you might be a cult, like take a harder look, you know? Well, Danielle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Absolutely. Can I uh, give one little line about my book? Yes, do it. Um, uh, is it is it out yet? No. So I know okay. I mentioned it a couple of times, right? Yeah. So just sold the book deal last month. Um, so the book is called Uncultured and it is a memoir. It's a story of my life in the children of God and then my life in the military and the surprising amount of parallels that I found. And then again, like where we sort of see that all around us, uh, but all stories. So very, very, hopefully very, very interesting um, writing it with a wonderful group of women and it will be out hopefully in 2022. So the things right now to do are it's on Goodreads. So you can find Uncultured by Daniela Mesnick Young and add it to your want to read list. And that will also get you all the information about early publishing, um, you know, all the cool super fan stuff. And then follow me on Twitter, because um, I'll also talk about it on there. And on Twitter, I'm Daniela M. Young. And um, I basically tell crazy stories all day long. So I love it. I don't know how I came across you. I think it's because I'm friends with like, people affiliated with the military. And you know how Twitter shows you when a friend likes something. And I was like, yep. oh, she looks cool. And so I was like, and then I'm like, I want to come on the podcast and talk. <laughs> so that's where it went. <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm the one uh, in my full dress blues with unauthorized sunglasses and two hands full of flowers. Just uh, <laughs> being my uncultured self, you know, so. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a very fun conversation. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.